Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Ina Janssen. So Ina has worked all over the world as a sport biomechanist. She started with studies in the USA and moved to Australia for a PhD with the Australian Institute of Sport. Now she works as a sport biomechanist at Papendal, the Dutch Olympic Training Centre, where she's done that for the last 10 years, helping elite athletes get the best out of their performances using fantastic biomechanics. So who better today to discuss biomechanics than Ina? Without further ado, it's time to welcome her onto the show. So Ina, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for the invite. Uh, I've listened to quite a few of them, so it's nice to be uh, on the other side. Absolutely. Excellent. So can we get a quick introduction from you as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Uh, yeah, sure. So I am uh, now working as a sports biomechanist at the Olympic Training Center in uh, Papenholm, the Netherlands. I've been here for 10 years now. And I started my interest in uh, biomechanics. Uh, I was a, a student athlete or a junior athlete and was injured quite a bit. So I was really interested in why I kept getting injured. So I went and uh, studied uh, sports medicine in uh, the U.S., and I followed that up with a, a master's in sports science uh, in Australia. And I was lucky enough to do my PhD at the Australian Institute of Sports, where I worked with the volleyball program, looking at uh, their issue with jumper's knee and relating that really to technique. And that's always been a big interest of mine is uh, how people move and what that relationship is with uh, injury. Absolutely. Excellent. So what is biomechanics then? Because obviously you've, you've mentioned it there, like obviously how people move, but like what does it encompass? Because there's so much to that. Yeah, absolutely. So officially it's, it's defined as the physics of movement. So it really is how we look at athletes and how they move and how that influences performance and also the injury risk. So at the elite level, so specifically looking at sports biomechanics, uh, we look at how an athlete moves now, what we can alter to improve their performance, so what can help them throw further, jump higher, for example, but also what their injury risk is, for example, an ACL injury or a jumper's knee, patellotinopathy. So trying to see how their movement influences these factors. So I really see it as the, a link between, uh, sometimes I'm more uh, more of the physio looking at what, which muscles are involved in certain movements. And sometimes it's very much working with strength and conditioning as well on how uh, things like power and momentum can influence uh, their technique as well. And w- why are those things then important? Because it sounds kind of obvious, like injury risk, don't want those. Um, but like, why, why are those important for sport performance? Yeah, these days it's really uh, something that, that is required at the elite level. It's uh, being able to get that last few percentage and finding a way to do something more effective. Biomechanics has really moved from, you know, 20 years ago, uh, copying someone's uh, technique so everyone can do it the same way and win a medal, to now really identifying what this particular individual can, can change in their anthropometry or in with their anthropometry, with their technique and in really getting the best out of them and it's really making that that difference between that last percentage to to get to that uh, point for performance and how does that then work at the elite level in terms of like getting someone to improve their performance because obviously they get to that stage because they're really good right so you kind of come in and you're like you do some tests and all of a sudden you're like okay well you need to do this differently so how can athletes use uh biomechanics or a biomechanist then to to improve their performance yeah, it's many different ways that were uh, used. Sometimes it's indeed for the interest of screening of the injury risk. That's probably uh, a standard one where you know, the whole uh, team will come in and we'll do you know a drop vertical jump or different types of techniques and look at what's in everyone's injury risk. 
Other times it's a specific question from a coach from, hey, we want to get this athlete to, to throw this further. Can you have a look and maybe see what they can do differently? And sometimes the coach will say, something's not right. I don't quite know. Can you have a look at their technique and let me know what, what you see is differently. So those are three really different ways that approach that. And often it's just collecting the data and then having a look and seeing how what, what's noticeable and how this athlete moves and what is maybe a reason that is holding them back or that they're unable to, to take that next step. And to, to go about doing that, obviously you need to do some kind of testing and you have to have some equipment for that. So at the top level, at least, what are the kind of technologies which you get to use to, to kind of identify these things? But the, there's a huge range. So at the really elite level and the huge uh, sports institutes, they have um, really big systems, the markerless uh, capture system uh, that are worth a lot of money and yeah. that are now used a lot for animation, for example, with Avatar or making FIFA video games. That's that's exactly what they do. They'll get these athletes in and have them move. And that's why they look so much like, like they do um, in the video game. But uh, that's not always necessary. We can also dumb it down a little bit, uh, starting with high-speed cameras, looking at someone, uh, how they move. Most smartphones now have 240 frames per second. So we can really slow that down, look at how someone moves. But um, we also use a lot of inertial sensors. So these are placed all over the body, or we can just use the lower limb to see how someone moves and then in their environment. So they don't necessarily have to come to a lab at all. We actually don't have a sports biomechanics lab here. But that's not necessary. I'm, uh, I'm on the BMX uh, track or I'm in on the volleyball court. And that's where we collect the data and how they move to really get that ecological validity on, on what's going on there. And recently, there's been a huge development in what we call markerless motion capture. So it's really getting that three-dimensional representation of how somebody moves. And this can just be done with uh, two iPads, for example, or two iPhones, a new system that's come out. So now we're playing with that even for, is this something we can use in the elite environment to capture what the athlete is doing without them having any markers on them? So there's no preparation time. That's really going to be uh, really great. For example, in the US, I know a lot of the baseball stadiums have a similar system, markerless motion capture, where every pitch they can quantify the load and the technique, not only from their own players, but then also the opposition and kind of use that as a and to see how, how people are pitching without that the players have any issues with that. So it's really taking big steps in uh, at the elite level to, to quantify what people are doing. And I think every U.S. baseball team has their own biomechanists on staff now. So it, we've seen a huge growth in the last 10 years at the elite level. So I, I imagine maybe uh, 10, 10 years ago, whatever, you've got these kind of markers on everyone and they're kind of suited up and they're in that little like tight Lycra suit and all that kind of stuff. But potentially now you don't need any of that and you can actually just stand there and you said two iPads, right? Like, yeah, how how do you know that someone's not going to film you? Like, because someone could be analyzing, not, not me at home, but like you could be on the street, right? And people could be analyzing you. Absolutely. And uh, I think that that's probably already happening, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, with with uh, with face recognition, I think that's similar as well. Really looking at how uh, how people how people move. Um, I've seen some of the studies as well, is where they just look at uh, people on the streets and how they're walking, and looking at how, how the different gates uh, can influence different people. So there's a lot of uh, information out there that um, you can get without without people being aware. I think with baseball, it's also just a standard. Everyone knows that this is happening in, in the stadiums. And uh, that's expected. Similar things now with uh, football. We've heard that 
in all the stadiums, they're getting some 3D uh, motion analysis from every player on the pitch. And I'm sure not every player signed a waiver saying <laughs> that's allowed, or they probably did and didn't know it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just becoming so much data. So the, the trick now really is what's relevant, what's important, and what's, uh, what's worth uh, feeding back to the athlete, to the coach, and what can you change? And how much focus do you need to put on certain aspects of, of the biomechanics to, to improve it? I think it's, it's going to be really interesting to touch on some of that later on as well. But before we get there, um, we touched quickly on the, the technology. But if, let's say, you're not in a position where you've got all of the money in the world, right? Like, brilliant if you do, you can get the most up-to-date systems. It's fantastic. Fill your stadium with these things and you can analyze everything. But let's say, um, yeah, uh, you earn my salary and therefore can't do that. And you want to do some biomechanics at home. Um, how do you go about doing that on a budget? Are there, are there cheap options available? Yeah, my, my salary doesn't allow for that either. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot of apps now. So the the what I was just saying with the two iPads, that's actually freeware and it's open source and it comes from Stanford University. And and what's really interesting because it's open source, so many people are using it and it's free. And so the development of that is going so quickly because all these students and labs all over the world are trying it and already making gains to if it were something that you had to pay for. So that really shows and how uh, something like that can really advance these technologies. Um, but other apps that are available, everything from looking at your ankle uh, function, your rehabilitation to how high you can jump. And these have often been validated as well. And uh, so we know with uh, things like my jump app, then you can see and quantify how, some, how high someone's jumping, do some even force velocity profiling with that. Uh, golf is a huge sport where people, recreational weekend warriors, really film themselves and try to look at their technique to improve that. Uh, lots of running stores have now, you know, if you're going to buy some new uh, running shoes, they make you run over this uh, track just to look at how your foot moves to see what's the best uh, type of shoe. So there's definitely lots of equipment out there and lots of apps out there to, to start quantifying things, which I think is is great to bring it more to the mainstream. Um, but then also the trick of what's uh, what's relevant and what's important to, to pull out of there and how accurate are these apps. But, yeah. And I, I really want to get into how you do that in, in your work. But before we get there, if, if let's say someone is going to use an, an app like that, how do they know what the data is, which is important? How do they know how to go about processing that and, and improve their performance? Is there, is there kind of a, a step process to that? That's a very good question. I, I think there's been a, a few that have been validated um, quite well and have been published uh, that, that how valid they are. Uh, we always look at a little bit, you have the validity for the academics and you have the how valid needs to be in the applied sense. And that's always uh, a tricky, like how accurate it needs to be in order to make it effective and, and useful in applied, where sometimes a little bit more lenient with what the validity needs to be. Um, but that is something definitely to look at with, with the validation of that. But if someone uses these, it's mainly to, to compare to yourself. I think we've really moved away from this is the technique to jump or this is the technique to sprint. Uh, if you looked at Usain Bolt uh, as a teenager, people would have said, oh, no way. This guy is way too tall. His legs are too, too long. He'll never be a good sprinter because that was not the image of, of sprinting. So I think uh, we've definitely moved away from the ideal movement and it's just something to look at individ everyone individually and see how you can improve your technique or that specific uh, technique for this. 
Absolutely excellent. So when when we're doing that in the lab, right, we're going to back back to the away from cheap apps, all, all the equipment in the world. Um, can you give us an example of how you've done that previously with athletes to to make sure that they're performing at the highest level or, or improving their performance? Yeah, the, I, I, the, um, an example that I, I like to give, and this is actually on the running track because uh, that's where we did a lot of the testing. And we use a system often called OptoJump in sprinting, uh, which is great because it gives feedback right away and the athlete doesn't have any problems with it. And it basically measures how long your contact time is, how long uh, each step is, so your step length and your air, air time. So I was working with a, a long jumper and there's just so much information out there also internationally like with um, world championships for uh, athletics. They often produce a report on this year, all the biomechanical variables. So takeoff velocities, horizontal, vertically. And we knew that this athlete, um, this is one of the examples where the coach came and said, so something not right on this technique, can you, can you have a look? Um, so we tested him just with high-speed cameras, looking at what is his takeoff velocity, horizontal and vertically. And we saw that um, horizontal velocity was pretty comparable to the international uh, elites and what we know that their horizontal velocity is for long jump. But when we looked at vertically, he was way behind. I think usually it's about three meters per second, and he was about one and a half meters per second. So there was something in his takeoff that was that was really holding him back and that's why it was really affecting his his jump uh, distance so often these coaches especially for long jump you stand uh, on the side so what we call it a sagittal view of the athletes looked at how they're running and what i actually did is put a camera in front so i had the camera where the athlete was running towards the camera and what i saw during these jumps is that when he was taking off or when he was standing on his takeoff leg so this was his right leg his hips would drop uh, in, in primarily that the, the left leg would drop down. And that was very consistent throughout the run up. And his right leg is the one that he would take off. And knowing you know, with biomechanics and the kinesiology, you know that there's a muscle there called your gluteus medius, which is responsible for keeping your pelvis straight when you're standing on one leg. And it was for with him just so weak when he would be standing on his right leg that his hips would drop. So when he's taking off on his right leg, his hip was already dropped to the left. So we'd have to use energy to come back square and then also to get off on the ground. So we'd been really ineffective in getting off the ground and that was really affecting his um, its vertical velocity. So spoke with the, the coach about that, showing with the high-speed videos and also with the physio. And the physio then also tested the, the gluteus medius and that seemed to be, that was really weak compared to what we'd expect in a lot of the other athletes. So that was a way that we could really relate the technique and what we saw to to the performance and then back to a training. Okay, so this muscle really needs to be uh, investigated and worked on so we can make sure that his takeoff, uh, his vertical takeoff velocity improves. And we did that a few times also just to monitor it during training. Just we put two little stickers on his um, anterior superior iliac spine, so the two bones in the front, and just with sprinting, then we could keep that in an eye on what happens dynamically when he's sprinting. And it was just often feedback for him. So that was... Um, yeah, I think one of the examples where, where the coach really comes says something's not right. I don't quite know. Can you, uh, can you have a look? And, and did that make a difference then in the end? Obviously you've measured that a few times. So did, did you manage to, to make an impact? Yeah, he did uh, jump high. He did uh, unfortunately uh, do a hamstring injury jumping <laughs> up when he took okay. off the right. And the theory also actually with the, the physio then was because uh, his right hamstring was uh, had to absorb so much of the forces that were taking off because it was unable to really uh, make that transfer with the hip muscle that was just uh, overloaded, um, unfortunately. So that that's 
often with biomechanics challenging that you can strongly say, yes, uh, I made a difference to this technique and this is why he jumped further. So I find that hard to, to pin down, but um, we try to, to contribute to a, a tiny aspect to that. And I can imagine as well, when you change one thing, you, you change a lot of other things. So it's, it's really difficult to say, oh, yeah, this was definitely the, the right decision. Um, but then when you're looking at a situation like that, is, is it always so obvious? So the way you've described it, it sounds, sounds completely obvious. But I imagine there's sometimes you, you see it and it doesn't really look like anything. But then you get into the data and it's uh, maybe a different story. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an example that you said I've used a few times because it was one of the clear ones and uh, they don't definitely happen every single time. And sometimes you don't see anything different or you don't see anything unusual. Um, but one example, I've just been working with some athletes that have had some ACL reconstructions and we were comparing on how with the, with the inertial sensors, how they're moving or how they're jumping in, in what we call the, the triple hop. And one of the athletes, um, so doing this together with physio, and they look at the landings that they stick. But one of the athletes was struggling a lot to really stick the landing. And we just kept, or I just kept measuring, just recording the whole session. And then I found it really interesting to go back and look, well, why is she not sticking these other lang landings? And then you could see that there as well there was a lot of rotation in her trunk she was trying to compensate uh, for that limb and sometimes it gives you a lot more information you don't necessarily have to quantify it i think you don't always have to put a number to it but even just showing the athlete hey why are you doing this with with, with your trunk and um she kept saying oh that's the side i'm always injured on so i'm really worried that i'm going to injure it again if, if i jump on it so with her it was definitely psychological as well but uh, sometimes it's just taking the big picture instead of the actual proper test or when they're run, walking back to the start that's where you see all these asymmetries uh, between the left and the right limb without it being officially part of the test so I think um, that's something we forget as well that the athletes will do it when you're saying oh here we go we're testing but the subconsciously or uh, when they're not aware of when you're looking that's when we sometimes can get a bit more information of, of what's really happening and i can imagine as well looking looking back at what you've discussed with the with the really expensive equipment actually everyone's got a camera so yeah like that could be a really reasonable way of, of going about things to just take a look at it and be like okay what do you see what do i see what does the coach see and to then come together and be like right, okay well maybe you could do a b and c differently yeah, and that's with some of the landing technique. We try to, we've done a study with handball, for example, instead of telling them, oh, look at your landing, you need to make sure you do this with your knee or this with your hip, that we just show them an outline of their landing technique and say, just show them, don't, don't even say anything and let them see if they pick up themselves what they would uh, need to change. So we're using a bit of the motor learning uh, part of that and to see if athletes can change that. So that was uh, something that we did a few years ago and that led to uh, an improvement in landing technique um, for, for the injury risk. Absolutely excellent. So, Ina, massive thanks. Uh, I really appreciate it. Where can people find a little bit more about you if they're, if they're interested in, the, in you or biomechanics? Yeah, I'm probably most active on, on Twitter. Um, so it's at uh, Janssen Ina um, on, on Twitter. That's where I try to promote some of the biomechanics and also support of the women in science, women in sports biomechanics uh, aspects. And that's mainly sometimes on, on LinkedIn, uh, I post things as well. But the, I think for uh, really biomechanics case studies and, and papers, that's that's probably the best way to find out about me. Perfect. So thank you very much for your time and effort. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to seeing you on uh, Monday. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for <laughs> your time.
And that's it once again. A massive thanks to Ina for all of her hard work into this podcast. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Science of Sport Coach Academy. Now, the Coach Academy is a series of mini courses broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get yourself into the Coach Academy, all you have to do is click that link in the show notes and you can be in there completely for free for the next seven days in just a few seconds time. And the bonus, every time you complete one of those courses, you'll get a certificate of completion to prove your ongoing education. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it'd be fantastic if you recommend us to a coach, a colleague, an athlete, or a friend. That means that we can keep bringing you the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.